this morning I'm excited to open God's Word with you and to see what we have in um, our series on the letter of James. Um, we've entitled it 24-7 because James talks so clearly about living our faith. He is very interested in making sure that we are practically living out the faith in Jesus Christ that we have. And we finished uh, the first chapter in these last several weeks, and we are diving into chapter 2. So let me invite you to turn in your Bible to James chapter 2. Get that app open, turn the page. Uh, you can find that there. If you're using version, I believe, Pastor Ron, do we have a confirmation that the event is live? It's not live, it's not working. All right, well, we're trying that on the version app so you can follow along. I'm going to go ahead and read the first 13 verses of James chapter 2. I'd invite you to follow along, and then we'll pray, and we'll dive in. So James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, we need the help of the Holy Spirit this morning. And so we would ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. And uh, Holy Spirit, please help us to understand. Give us ears to hear, open our hearts. Um, Lord, uh, you have much in this passage for us to put into practice. So I pray, Lord, that we would not miss this. And um, God, I pray that you would impress it on our hearts as an important thing for us to practice as a church family. Um, we, We ask you to be with us now and that we would engage with this text. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the word of the Lord, and we are excited to get into it. I want you to imagine with me this morning that you happen to glance over at the double doors in the back, which are so ably manned, um, and you saw somebody walk in who is a celebrity. And not only just a celebrity, but someone that you... Uh, particularly like or enjoy their music, their movies, their acting, their performance on a sports field. What would you feel? What would you think? We joke about this in the office every once in a while, that if just one of the uh, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim 
uh, were to come to our church and just maybe, you know, just tithe a little bit, that would be super helpful. <laughs> and therein lies the danger for the rest of the sermon, <laughs> okay? I just imagine if Mike Trout walked in or if Chris Hemsworth walked in the back, ah, or I don't know, anyone, Taylor Swift walks in, what's going to happen for the rest of the service for those of you whose hearts are a flutter? Um, especially if you're sitting close to the front and they sit in the back. How many times would you turn around and find an excuse to look backwards at that person? Now, what if you looked at the double doors during this sermon in between your naps and you saw someone walk in who was um, smelly and disheveled? Someone who might have their eyes darting here and there. Someone who you immediately think, I hope they don't sit down next to me. And then the service is over and you're walking out those double doors and that person is going to the doors at the same time. Would it matter which person is going to the doors? If it's Taylor Swift or Chris Hemsworth or if it's that person that you don't want to talk to? at the door, who would you engage with and why? Some of you are like, that's easy. I just wouldn't engage with anybody. <laughs> okay. Well, for the rest of us, <laughs> for the rest of us, what comes to your mind? And see, we use this exaggerated extreme um, story because James does, but it's actually not that unheard of that when you and I walk into those doors that there are people right now in this room that we don't want to talk to or engage with or sit near. Some of us have gone through a separate entrance to get in here to avoid people. Some of us have taken a longer visit to the restroom to hope a certain group clears up when we come back. This is a real issue, and we need to talk about it. And James is not shy. James is not shy to talk about it. And I think that that is important for us to consider. Because is Village Bible Church, are we, the church here on Barrow Street, a place where a legitimately poor person can feel accepted and equal? Are we? Are we a haven for the hurting, or are we just a backpatting club for religious middle-class Americans? What about ethnic minorities? How do we treat one another? And what does that say about the Middle Eastern man that we claim to follow? Can we have Democrats or Republicans or independents or those who don't care about politics be accepted here at Village Bible Church? What about immigrants? What about successful white-collar workers? What about retired folks searching for meaning? Today, I think, I think I would be so bold as to say God has something in this passage for us to examine, and not just in a theoretical way, but in a very down-to-earth practical way, in a way that will apply to this weekend, in a way that I hope will apply to every time we come to this church on a Sunday, on a Wednesday, on a Thursday, on whatever times that we're together as the church. And then obviously this would apply to those who bear the name of Jesus and go into your workplace and in going to your school, and in going to your neighborhood, because there are different uh, socioeconomic categories in those places. There are different levels of uh, status, and we need to be aware of this. 
And we need to be thinking about this, not in the way that we think is best, but in the way that God tells us to. And so I am challenged, we need to be challenged by this text today. Uh, In chapter 1 of James, Pastor Ron has broken that down for the last few weeks, and uh, James kind of has hit a bunch of different topics, and he's going to come back to almost all of them. But here in chapter 2 is the first time that he really camps out on one topic for all 13 of these verses. And that topic is um, what I've named the sermon today, Partiality and Prejudice, because what is very clear from this passage is the divisions that are among us. Now look around the room. There are people here you don't know their name. Okay? I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about that, but you should learn their name. Um, But there are also people in this room that are very different from us. Their context is different from us. Their home is different than ours. Their job is much different than ours. And this is something that we have to understand. James takes 13 verses to relate to us how we ought to treat one another in the context of the local gathering, no matter our socioeconomic status. So take a look, if you will, with me at verse 1 of James chapter 2. Notice how James begins this part of the letter. He repeats himself and says, My brothers... And really this means my brothers and sisters, or the, or the older word brethren. He's referring to his siblings in Jesus. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And that leads us into the first point in your notes. Plain favorites in the church forgets the Lord of glory and pursues the cheap imitation of the glory of man. Plain favorites in the church forgets the Lord of glory and pursues the cheap imitation of the glory of man. You see, as as James introduces this part of his letter, he is very clear as to what he is talking about and who he is talking to. He is talking to those who hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, but he adds the Lord of glory, or it could be the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. In the Greek, it just says the glory Okay? Perhaps even referring to the Shekinah glory of God's presence in the Old Testament, that Jesus now is the presence of God to us. And James says, if you claim to hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, then there is a requirement for you. By the way, he's not suggesting things here. James isn't like, hey guys, I got some tips for you. Some tips how to better run your church service. Okay? That's not what he's saying. He's actually giving commands in the imperative. Show no partiality is a command. And that that word means to receive someone according to their face. It's taken straight from the Hebrew. And that basically means is judging based on external appearance. So that when I see your face, I will accept you or not. Um, This refers to the partiality of our judging somebody based on outward appearances from what we can tell and using that as the only criteria for whether or not I will uh, uh, whether or not I will talk to you, whether or not I will accept you, whether or not I will treat you as an equal. And this is incredibly important because as we'll see, it comes in the assembly, in the gathering of the Christians in this place. And this is only natural, right? This is what we do. We all do this. We all judge according to appearances. In one sense, we can't help it. Right? There is a, there's a part of us that needs to discriminate in some sense to, in one sense, keep ourselves safe. Right, That person looks unsafe. 
okay? Our, our defenses go up, okay? Or we understand that as we judge someone by their appearance, we do it in a harmless way, like, there's the mailman, okay? Because of external appearances. The external appearance of that car behind me seems to be the highway patrol, therefore I need to act in a certain way, <laughs> or it might be too late, Okay? But we, we all do this to a certain extent. And what James is trying to help us see is that it's not enough to remain there once we come together. Once we come together as a, a church family, as a group of people, we can no longer just judge someone according to their external appearances. Um, if you've been a Christian long, you probably recognize the allusion here to uh, when Sam, the prophet Samuel goes to anoint a new king. And he goes to Bethlehem to the house of, household of Jesse. God has told him to go there. And he says, go anoint one of his sons as king. And God leaves it a mystery to Samuel exactly which one it is. But Samuel walks up and sees the firstborn. And he's big and he's buff and he's strong. Probably got a good jawline, right? He, 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 looks, he looks like a king. And Samuel goes, aha, there he is. And the Lord says something really, really important. Okay? The Lord says, Samuel, I don't judge people by external appearances like you do. Okay, but I'm looking at the heart. And that's why Samuel goes down and the prospects get dimmer as he gets late into the seventh round draft pick here. And then there's nobody there. There's no one to anoint. What's going on? Well, it's the, it's the boy who's out with the sheep. Okay, so God throughout, especially the Old Testament, shows us that he doesn't show partiality. And that's one of the most uh, particular stories in that God chooses David on purpose to show his glory. So when we show partiality as we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, which just ups the ante. If you say you're a Christian and you show partiality, there is no place for that in Christianity. In fact, the other places that the word for partiality appears in the New Testament, all the other places that this word appears uh, are in reference to God not showing partiality. So everywhere else you see this word, it's actually showing that God doesn't show partiality. Which is why the church is so magnificent, because it consists of people of, um, from every tribe and nation and tongue. We look different. We speak different languages. We have no reason to be together except for Jesus Christ. And so there's deeper than just the natural. There is a supernatural acceptance of one another. And God doesn't play favorites. James is saying God doesn't play favorites, and neither should we. It's also interesting that he calls Jesus the Lord of glory. And I think he does that specifically here at the outset to say this one that you follow, Jesus, the God-man, is the Lord of glory. He's the one who gets glory. He's the one who's glorious. Stop messing around with throwing your glory around at rich people. The implication and we'll, we'll get into this as the verse is gone. The implication is that these people in this church are throwing their glory, they're giving their glory, they're giving their praise to someone who's not worthy of it. When they're missing the whole point of the Lord of glory in their midst. If they understood that when they come together that they are in the presence of the Lord Jesus in a special way because God's people are here, because the body of Christ is gathered, then when they're, when they're gathered together, they cannot show partiality. They cannot play favorites. And the main reason they can't do that is because their God doesn't do that. You don't reflect the family name or the family practice. 
Okay, so sometimes we have a saying in our house that this is what Gilmores do, right? Or Gilmores don't do that, okay? Or when my girls want to quit, I say Gilmores don't give up, okay? I'm trying to pass on a family trait, right? The family trait of the Lord of glory is that God gets the glory and we don't show partiality to others. As was um, stated in the introduction sermon to this series, we were we're fairly certain that the writer of the epistle of James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. That this James grew up as the younger brother of Jesus. He did not believe in Jesus during his ministry. You could, you know, think why. If you have an older brother and he says he's God, you might have problems with that. Okay, if your older brother was perfect, you'd always have problems with that. And yet here, James is actually just showing us the life of Jesus. When Jesus was on this earth in those 33 years, he showed no partiality. He showed no partiality. He didn't, he didn't look to impress the rich in order to gain an advantage. We work hard to please Jesus first because he is the glorious Lord. Also, James is, is probably... He's talking to Jewish Christians, and so he's appealing to the Jewish law as well. So if you'll turn back in your Bibles with me really quick to the book of Leviticus. Go to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Some scholars think that all 13 verses here are basically James' exposition of Leviticus 19. That James is taking Leviticus 19 and using it through the lens of Jesus and the fulfillment of the law to remind the church how they ought to act together. In Leviticus 19, take a look at verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear your God. I am Yahweh. Verse 15 is where we want to really hone in. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be, what's the next word? Partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. This seems to be what James is riffing off of at the very least. By saying, we cannot be partial in our judgments. We cannot say, well, he's poor, so we'll just give him a pass. Or, they're rich, and we really want them on our team, and we really want them to be our patrons, so we'll kind of cater to them. No, 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 no. That is not how this is supposed to be. This is not how the Lord of glory is. And then what James does is in verses 2 through 4, he kind of gives us almost a little parable. And there's debate about whether or not this is a real situation or whether or not it's exaggerated. I tend to think that James is using a a very similar example to what he's been hearing has been going on in the churches. It's not hard to imagine this happening. In fact, it's not hard to imagine this happening in your life, is it? There are people at your work, in your neighborhood, at your school, that you are tempted to cozy up to for the advantage that it gives to you, Right? There's not a lot of nodding. Maybe I'm the only person that struggles with this. This is Pastor Repentance Day. <laughs> we like being around people of higher status because we're hoping their status will rub off, rub off on us like pixie dust. 
and will be elevated to that status. The temptation is to be partial to those who can help us. Because if we're partial to those that can hurt us, we automatically cringe at that. We, we step away from that. We don't want to lower ourselves. We want to elevate ourselves. And so in the example that James gives, he gives a, a, a very similar example to what I gave earlier. And he says, just imagine that a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. And, and the gold ring probably refers to a Roman um, who was of a high class. Gold didn't just throw gold rings around <laughs> um, at the time. And he has fine clothing. The word for fine, by the way, the ESV, that's really lame. Um, it's like bright, like shiny, like gaudy clothing, like show off clothing. Okay, he is, he is wearing the nicest of the nice clothing as he walks into the assembly. So understand that the context is when the people are together. And when the people are together, here comes this man walking in and everybody sees him. Okay, at this point in, the, in church history, it's probably in a house, okay, or maybe a synagogue or, or a, a meeting place, and everyone sees this man come in. And they also all see a poor man in shabby clothing. Another word for, for that is filthy. It, it, it stinks. He hasn't changed his clothes in a long time. He's slept in them, and he hasn't slept in a bed. Okay, so, so we can see the picture that James is throwing before us, a hypothetical situation that sadly, isn't all that hypothetical. There's debate about whether the rich man is a Christian or not, because in verses 6 and 7, when we get there, it's clear that these rich people are not Christians. I tend to, to lean toward this man being a Christian. He's a rich Christian, and so it, it levels the playing field. Either way, the point is not lost about what happens next. As these people come into the assembly, verse 3 is where the action happens. James warns them that if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Notice, notice the picture here. Um, they're giving the rich man the best seat in the house. Right? The, the place that's probably the most comfortable, that probably has the best visibility, that probably is the, the, the place to be noticed. The poor man it either has to stand over there. Like, where is over there? Just away from me. You stand over there. Or worse, sit down. And in the Greek, it says, sit down at my footstool. Okay, so do they have footstools in church? Because that's a good thing to consider. But... Is it literally a footstool or is it like saying subject, like in a subjection, like down at my feet? Okay. Either way, generally we don't enjoy sitting by other people's feet, especially in a culture where you walked around in sandals all the time on unpaved roads, where the primary transportation was your own feet or donkeys and oxen, which I don't know if you've ever been behind one of those for a while, but that could get dicey. Okay. So the, the picture is that the poor man gets to sit at someone's feet. Like someone who's been defeated in war and is under the foot of somebody else. What kind of treatment is this? And the question for us clearly here is that when we gather, when we're here, who are we paying attention to? There's all these opportunities from the parking lot to in here to the restrooms, to the education hour, to coffee out there, to the library, to back to your cars. This is all in operation. 
Who are you paying attention to? Why are you paying attention to them? What's in it for you? So let's talk about where we sit on Sunday mornings, shall we? Your muscle memory got thrown off today, didn't it? We have some lovely people sitting over here in this region, and they didn't know that this was saved for the Masatwala clan. Uh, look at this. Look around you. You're like, whoa, people are sitting in different places. Thanks, guys. That was really good. <laughs> have you ever thought about where you sit and why you sit there? Like, this isn't like guilt trip time, right? Because like we, we get into a groove and we sit in the same place, okay? So like I'm not saying, I guess this happened under Pastor Leroy years ago is where you guys all switched or something and threw, that's funny, threw him off, okay? That's not what I'm saying. Okay, but what I am saying is, have you ever even thought about where you sit and why you sit there? Might you sit somewhere else and be more effective on Sunday morning? Is your choice of seating solely for your own good? Now listen, I understand, like, there's places in here where you can hear better or see better, and, that, and there's obviously the necessity of thinking through those things. But if your seat is only because I feel comfortable here and I am due comfort when I come to God's place, just listen to yourself. Maybe, maybe, maybe your comfort is not what's most important on Sunday morning. Now, listen, the air conditioning's on. So we do care about your comfort. Praise God. Okay? By the way, there's air conditioning going into the kids' building. At, yay! Look at the kids... Wow, look at that. All the kids workers are like, hallelujah. So let's talk about greeting time that we just had a few minutes ago, a while ago. What happens during greet time? Some of you hate it. Some of you mysteriously disappear because it makes you uncomfortable. Some of you are in your element. Some of you are like politicians out here, just shaking hands. And Some of you, I really appreciate have your radar up and are looking to greet people, are looking to make sure people aren't left out. Thank you for doing that. Listen, that's not just for the extroverts. It's easier for the extroverts, but it's not just for the extroverts. We've got to be making sure that we are looking out for those who are coming to visit, to hear God's word. You know who's most uncomfortable during greet time? The visitors who don't know anybody. So let's work, church. Let's work together to do a better job during the greet time. I get consumed during the greet time about the next thing on my list to do. And I confess, I walk right past some of you. I'm sorry. Right? We get caught up. I got to go do this. I got to go talk to that person. And that's fine. We have, sometimes that's the time to do that, right? But but we need to be making sure that we are looking to whom we're paying attention to and whom we're not paying attention to. We need to be a welcoming church, a place that says our God has welcomed us and so we will welcome you. So let's think about this. Let's be intentional. Don't just fall into the rut of doing the same thing every time and greeting the same people. Let's be on the lookout. Parents, if you're checking in kids and you see some parents, some visitors out there that have kids and they don't know what they're doing, just go grab them and show them how to sign in. Invite them into the life of the church. Don't make them figure out how to get in. When we make distinctions among ourselves based on status, based on money, based on jobs, 
then we have become judges with evil thoughts, James says. So James, James is, is making sure to tell, this is not like, guys, don't do this bad sin. He's saying this, this makes you an evil judge with evil thoughts or motives or reasoning could be the word there. One scholar said this, when we attempt to discern people's value based on external features, we not only try to usurp God's role as judge, but we fail miserably in the process because we don't have x-ray vision. <laughs> All we have is what we can see. Another, another one said this, the problem of discrimination is a perennial one for Christians because it is a tendency of basic human nature to favor those we serve to profit from the most. Which handshake during the greeting time will benefit me most? Which group can I get into that will benefit me most, that will raise my status? So junior hires and high schoolers, this is always an issue, right? The in-group, the out-group. How do we get in? Or how do we get in in the out-group <laughs> so we can stand out? How do we benefit ourselves? How do we make ourselves look cooler by who we associate with? While we, when we do that, we leave people behind. Just don't leave, don't leave your friends behind. When you come on Thursday night to Lifeline, when you come to church on Sunday, when you go up to the Sunday school classroom, guys, don't leave people behind because they're not cool and you don't like them and they're annoying. You know what? Guaranteed, people think that about you too. Okay? Guaranteed. Don't make distinctions among yourselves. It is super important for us to, to know this. I love this quote. When we're thinking about partiality, when we're thinking about prejudice, when we're thinking about becoming together as the people of God, we need to keep this in mind. Don't use people and love stuff. Love people and use stuff. When we become so addicted to the, the, the gain that we can get, then we, we stop seeing people as people and we see them as ways to gain. This is really important. And this informs how we function on a Sunday morning when we gather. Why are we here? What are we here for? We're here because Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us on the cross and rose from the dead. And he is worthy of our singing, of our attention, of our fellowship, and of our greeting of fellow human beings. There are places all over the scriptures, like in Psalm 82 and Proverbs 18 and 24 and 28 and Malachi 2, that say clearly that we're not to be partial, that we're not to show prejudice towards a certain group. And, and we know this comes out in our culture all the time. You can't judge me. Only God can judge me, which is one of the stupidest things anyone could ever say. Because that's coming and that's not fun. Yeah, you're, that's true in one sense. Only God can judge you and you really want to be a part of that? With that attitude? What are you going to say when you get to the God who can judge you? Only you can judge me. We need to be careful that we understand that we don't throw this around. Like everyone's favorite Bible verse is judge not that you don't be judged. Okay? You're so judgy. Now, we need to be careful, obviously, that we're not discriminating and making distinctions based on external appearances. But the Bible does tell us to judge with righteous judgment. And so this requires discernment. This requires us to actually care enough to dig down a little deeper. The partiality and the favoritism here in James is clearly about appearance 
and status. And obviously we make distinctions, right? Like I'm not letting all of you watch my kids. Some of you aren't qualified. <laughs> okay? I need to discriminate those who will be able to watch my children when they babysit. We discriminate. Not just anybody can work in children's ministry. Right? We're not just throwing people away. Hey, go ahead. They're just kids. No, they're our kids. And that's why they, everyone gets a background check in order to work with our children. But, but that does not mean, by the way, okay, that we're judging somebody's salvation or that we're saying someone's status qualifies them or disqualifies them from serving at Village Bible Church. We must be careful how we think about this. And this requires wisdom, which, by the way, James told us in the beginning of the letter to ask God for because God gives us wisdom when we ask for it. We need wisdom in order to discern rightly. And God gives it to us. Point number two in your notes, verses five through seven Favoring the rich and dishonoring the poor goes against the purpose of God and just against logic. (laughs) And James points this out in his argument. Favoring the rich and dishonoring the poor goes against the purpose of God and against logic. Listen, my beloved brothers, he says it again, brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Two things to notice here. James is not saying just because you're poor, you're saved. Or just because you're poor, God now is showing partiality to you. But what he is saying is that those who love him are promised riches in faith and inheritance of the kingdom. And quite often in human history, especially in the early church, and actually right now in most of the world, most Christians are poor. Most Christians are poor. Now, Jesus helps us, right, in the Sermon on the Mount that says, poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, Luke 6, Luke's account just says, blessed are the poor. Okay, but the, the point here is that God loves the poor, and in his program, many of them have come to follow him. While many of those who are rich, who feel no need for God because they have all that they need, they have all that they want, oppress the poor. And poor, often in the Bible, is, is not merely economically poor, although it certainly is. But oftentimes, it's also the pious poor, those who are poor in spirit, is why Jesus says that. Those who are looked down on, those who are persecuted, those who are different, those who are weird. And in the Roman world, status and cl- class meant almost everything. So James is saying something radical here. The poor who love God are honored by God. God honors the poor, and so should we. The, the promised inheritance is for those who love him. So it's not automatic that the poor qualify for the kingdom and the rich don't. But James is, is really focusing hard on the inequalities of the day and trying to say, church, you've got to be different. You've got to show something different to the world. In verse 6, he says, you've dishonored the poor man. By seating the rich man over here in the good seats and putting the poor man down at your feet, you've dishonored him. That is not what God does. God raises up the poor. And he raises up those who commit to him, who put their faith in him. And then he makes an argument from logic. Look Look at 6b. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? James is like, this is stupid. 
Why are you bending over backward for the rich when they oppress you and drag you into court? That makes no sense. They're fighting for a status that won't ultimately get them anywhere. And this is the lure of celebrity. This is the lure of, um, of famous, the rich and the famous, the sports figures that we feel some kind of affinity toward. The politicians and the TV and social media personalities that we get attached to. We have to be very careful how we attach ourselves to these people. Look at verse 7. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So why are you doing this? You see the logical reasons that he's given the rich oppress, they force lawsuits, and they blaspheme the name of God. So this makes me uncomfortable. And it should make you uncomfortable in thinking about how this looks in our lives. James seems to disagree with most of America in saying that we don't need to measure our success by our economic status, but that we measure our success by what Jesus paid for on the cross. Oftentimes in election years, we ask, are you better off than you were four years ago? As if that is the primary thing to think about in our well-being. Do I have more money? Am I more prosperous? Am I better able to paper over my sins because I have more money? That's a horrible way to think. Jesus, James's brother, said something like this. You cannot love God and money. You can't do it. So faith, not finances, gives us status that matters. Listen, we're going we're gonna to vote today on officers in this church, on the church budget. Listen, when you see that church budget... Like, we are not, like, the gold standard here in Orange County, right? Like, wow, look at this budget, man. They're just throwing money around at all these ministries. But you know what? I don't care. God has given us, he's brought us here. He's brought you and me here to this church. And the status that we have is sons and daughters of the king. My inheritance 10 million years from now will be exactly the same as someone who has $10 million right now. My status does not make me higher or lower in the eyes of God. And we cannot make someone's status in our church higher or lower based on their finances. Finances can buy you status for maybe a few decades. But faith will gain you status that will still be significant in 100 billion billion years. So ditch the few decades thing. That's not a good investment. Point number three in verses eight through 11, neighbor love fulfills the royal law while playing favorites breaks it. Neighbor love fulfills the royal law while playing favorites breaks it. And here in verse eight, James continues to talk about partiality, but he he shifts his argument into pointing out just how heinous a sin it is to show partiality, to play favorites among God's people. He's trying to help them not rank their sins. Well, as long as I only play favorites, but don't commit adultery, I'm doing good. James is trying to show them the wickedness of discrimination based on appearance, based on status, based on finances. 
Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, and he quotes Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And here James echoes his brother Jesus. He calls it the royal law, or we might call it the kingdom law. Uh, the word is the, is the same root as the word kingdom, and Jesus came, came promising the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so this, this kingdom law is not strictly just the Mosaic law from the Old Testament, although clearly it somehow folds that in because he's quoting Leviticus 19. But I think that the kingdom law here is a kingdom law. It's a royal law because Jesus is the king, and Jesus elevated this as uh, the corollary of the top commandment. And then the scribes came to Jesus and said, what's the, what's the most important commandment? They're trying to trap him because there's 613 he has to choose from. And Jesus runs an end around, okay, and, and totally, just totally throws them off. And he says, the greatest one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he quotes Leviticus 19, 18. It's really important that we see the word fulfill here. That as, as Jesus has come, as the new covenant has been inaugurated in Jesus' blood and his broken body on the cross, the Torah, the Old Testament law, has been fulfilled and in some senses expanded by Jesus. It's called the law of liberty back in chapter 1, verse 25, and he's going to call it the law of liberty here in verse 12 soon as well. But Jeremiah 31 promised that in the future there was a new covenant. And the implication is that there needed to be a new one because the old one wasn't good enough. And the new one was going to replace the old one, not by totally turning a 180 and going the opposite direction, but by fulfilling that and transitioning into this new covenant that Jesus started. This is huge. It's talked about all throughout the New Testament. In fact, Leviticus 19.18 is quoted at least in six different places in the New Testament, if not more. It's also promised in the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31 that God would then write the law on the hearts of his followers, which is exactly what James said a few verses ago in James chapter 1, verse 21. The implanted word has been planted inside of the follower of Jesus. So if we fulfill the royal law, you should love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. And so we apply love your neighbor as yourself to when we walk through the doors. When I come on Sunday morning, I need to love my neighbor as myself. How would I like to be treated? This is the golden rule that Jesus taught. How would I like to be treated? How would I like to be welcomed and loved? How can I do that for others? And verse 9, he says, if you're not going to follow the royal law, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. You've broken the law. So this isn't like a little... Oops, this isn't a white lie. This isn't something minor. This is a big deal. That The law will convict you of sin if you show partiality. If I show up and I judge other believers by their status, I am committing sin, which separates me from my God. The law convicts me as a transgressor. So favoritism, discrimination on the basis of appearance, is an active moral failure. It's an on-purpose, willful sin. The prophet Amos talked about this. 
He called some of the women of the northern kingdom cows of Bashan because all they wanted to do was give themselves more stuff and oppress those who served them. He said that those in the northern kingdom were pressing down on their servants because they had the means to do so. And he spoke out against it. Verse 10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And James's point is, there's not a list of laws and you hope to only break a few of them in your lifetime. What, what James is saying is, and this is how it's referred to throughout Scripture, there is a law, right? God's law, God's Torah, God's instruction. And when you break God's law, you've broken God's law. Does that make sense? Okay, you haven't just like violated one little check mark over here. When you break the law, when you fail in one point, you become guilty of the whole thing. That's why we have the phrase, you broke the law. Because there's a standard to which we are held. And when you break part of it, you broke it. You violated it. Now, some of you have an older um, edition of the ESV. And in 2016, the ESV made um, small changes um, based on word preference and word usage in the English. And so there's 52 words in 29 verses that were changed. So in verse 10, some of you have um, fails at one point has become accountable. Um, but so if you have a newer uh, ESV version says has become guilty of all of it. And the editors changed that because they felt like the force of the argument is that you're guilty. You're a law breaker. So the, the accountability is kind of a softer word. Like, oh, I'll keep you accountable. Okay? For accountability's sake. But this is like, no, you're guilty. Like you violated the law. And James is emphasizing the unity of God's law. In verse 11, he, he says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. It's like, geez, James, why do you use these examples? <laughs> He's going for the, the big stuff here. He quotes two of the Ten Commandments. His whole point, though, is that there's not some theoretical sin floating somewhere in the universe. There's sin against the God who created the law. When I break the law, I sin against God. I don't just violate some ethereal law. I, I violate the purpose of God who made the laws. The wages of sin is death. That's serious. And that's what James is saying. By breaking the law, you have earned death. You know what? You're going to get paid. Next paycheck, death. Because you worked for it. So I don't know if you really believe this this morning. Maybe you're visiting and saying, well, that's kind of harsh. I'm a pretty good person. I bet you are. There's a lot of really good people here. But what standard are you using? Like, I'm not Hitler. I love that one, right? That's a good, well, praise God. We're really glad you're not Hitler. If that's, if that's our standard, then we're shooting a little low. God can't just tolerate sin. He just doesn't sweep it under the rug, you know, like, forget about it. He doesn't, he's not, that's not how God functions. Evil must be accounted for. Sin must be paid for. There needs to be reconciliation between the sinner and the lawgiver. And there's a system for this. It's called hell. And it's where the punishment matches the crimes, the crimes against an eternal God. You sin against God, you bust up that relationship. And because God is holy and you're not, the just punishment is separation. You violated God's law. 
That's bad news. And unless God himself has decided to make a way for reconciliation, then we are doomed. And the good news that I have for you this morning is that he did. And we sang about it this morning. His mercy is what? It's more. He's more. It's greater than all our sin. God made a way in sending his own son to die on the cross. The only person who didn't deserve death died. The one who lived the life that all of us were supposed to live, lived it, and yet was thrown on a Roman cross in the greatest injustice in the history of the universe. The just for the unjust. And he bore all of our sins on the cross. As he hung between heaven and earth, God poured out his righteous and good wrath on sin. But instead of on your shoulders or mine, which would have broken in an instant, Jesus bore them up and carried all of them to death. All of God's anger at sin was absorbed by the only righteous one hanging on the cross. This is mercy because we don't deserve it. And that's why we show each other mercy because God has shown great mercy to us. And so in our own ways, we fumble around working to show mercy to one another. The last point encompasses the last two verses, verses 12 and 13. Showing mercy shows whose we are and gives confidence in the face of judgment. I struggled with these verses this week. (laughs) It's like one of those things in the Bible where like, that is so concise and clear, and I don't know what it means. (laughs) Verse 12 says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. James is very concerned with living this out. It's not just enough to say theoretically, okay, I'll do that. No, because it comes out when your mouth opens on Monday morning. Right? When you act, when you get in your car and you drive in traffic, when your kids wake you up earlier than you were anticipating. Then (laughs) we find out if you're speaking and acting as those who would be judged under the law of liberty. And notice it's the law of liberty. It's a liberating law. Jesus has changed things in a fundamental way in that we are still judged according to the law. The Old Testament law was good. And yet Jesus now has introduced a new covenant in which he has implanted the law on our hearts. He has given us the gospel. And so when Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law, he freed us up to be liberated by it, where the law informs us and helps us to live a righteous life rather than condemning us when we can't keep it. By the way, this includes how you speak and act on social media. Just a thought. Perhaps you you thought that Jesus didn't see what you do on social media. But not only does Jesus, but so do we. So do we. First, I'll leave that one there. Verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And I just think that James is probably referring to Jesus' parable. Remember that parable of the, the man who owes an incredible, unpayable debt to the king? The king forgives his debt, and then that guy goes home to a guy who owes him 10 bucks and chokes him out and throws him in jail? He didn't get it. He totally missed the point. The king shows you mercy, and you can't go show mercy on your servant who owes you a few bucks? You've missed the point. And here's, here's what James is saying. If you judge without mercy, then you have not received mercy. You have misunderstood it, you have twisted it, but you have not received it because if you receive God's great mercy, then your heart begins to change and you show mercy to others. 
or at the very least, when you screw up, you recognize that you screw up because the Holy Spirit inside you convicts you of your sin and you do something about it. Praise God for forgiveness. Praise God for mercy. And then this last phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's four words and that's great. And I struggled all week with what this means. (laughs) Is it God's mercy or man's mercy? What is it final judgment or is it me judging the person who walks into the church and who's poor or rich? Which one is it? (laughs) I tend to think that what mercy triumphs over judgment means because, because James is most concerned with our practice, our living this out, that what James is referring to is that our mercy, human mercy towards others triumphs or is victorious over judgment. When we show mercy, when we emphasize mercy, judgment is dispelled. Judgment is defeated because we who have been shown mercy by God extend mercy to others and that mercy triumphs over judgment. This might bring to mind some of you who learned Micah 6.8 in the King James. He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Put it into practice. Here's a great quote that I, I had to, to, I couldn't say it any better. This does not imply that showing mercy earns God's mercy. Like if I show mercy, then God's merciful to me. It's the opposite. That being merciful indicates that the person has been transformed by God's merciful grace and need not fear God's judgment. So because God's mercy triumphs over judgment, our mercy needs to triumph over judgment as well. And so when we speak of this, we're talking about especially what happens when we come together. How are we merciful towards one another? Where do we go from here? Well, this applies certainly every Sunday and every Wednesday and every Thursday and every time that we get together. And are we merciful? And not in a theoretical way. Like, do do you feel compassion or pity for someone? I mean, that's a nice first step, but that's as far as it goes if you don't do anything, right? You have to act on it. That's what... James wants us to do. In fact, that's why he says this because Pastor Ron next week gets to teach us about faith and works, good luck, and tells us that this is how it has to be. It has to be lived out. Oh, that poor guy. I hope he gets some help. The right action is, do I show mercy? Do I speak merciful words in a merciful way? Do I post merciful things on my social media account? Do I, by the way, do we say stuff on social media we would never say to a person face-to-face? Yes, we do. Stop it. That's me too. Stop it. James wants us to do mercy, not just, not just think it. So we need to think this morning, this, this week at the grocery store, in traffic, on Facebook, at home, and day or night, how are we who are shown uncommon mercy working to show mercy to others? And we don't just muster it up. It's not like wake up in the morning and go like, mercy today, mercy, I need more mercy. It actually starts with, I can't do this. I can't be merciful. I'm just so broken and messed up. I just can't do this without you, Lord. Holy Spirit, give me the power to be a bright light for God in a dark world. We ask for help from the merciful one. 
the Lord of glory. So village, let's be merciful this week. In fact, we have, I'm going to pray and we're going to walk out and we actually get to put the sermon into practice, like right now. Okay? And some of you are going to judge people for not putting the sermon into practice and shame on you because you totally missed it. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's put this into practice right now. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for James and his directness, his commands, his imperatives that speak to the nitty-gritty in our lives. Lord, as we go to um, serve in the nursery or work with the kids or uh, go to a Sunday school class, Lord, help us to, in actuality, put this into practice, that we would not be partial uh, to those who have a higher status than us, that we would not push people away because we don't like them or because they smell or because we don't like the way they're dressed or because they're annoying. Lord, help us rather to see that your mercy has accepted us in our smelly sin and our dirty, filthy rags, and you've raised us up next to you. So Lord, help us to do the same with others. In Jesus' name, amen.